Hello, everyone, and welcome to Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, and I'm a 27-year retired member of the service, NYPD. I was a sergeant. I retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. And tonight, we have a pretty exciting show. Uh, we're going to talk about, everyone has been in the media has been talking about the Nashville bomber, uh, Anthony Warner. But they've sort of neglected to go at it from a different angle, which is the suicide angle. Everyone's looking for um, a motive in this case. And to tell you the truth, there's a good possibility they may find that they may not find there was the motive in this case. It's been almost three years since the uh, shooting in uh, the uh, the shooting. Not in, I'm thinking of Atlantic City, um, Las Vegas. And they've never found out the motive to that. So potentially they may not find the motive for this either. One of the things I'd just like to comment on was the investigation of this case was flawless. The FBI, ATF, and the local police did an outstanding job. Outstanding. From the investigation, the FBI, the ATF, and the local police to the local police responding and saving dozens of lives from evacuating those buildings. Tonight, I have a guest uh, who's a retired NYPD detective, and he's also a doctor of psychology. He's a clinical psychologist, and his name is Tom Coughlin. No, he's not the former Giants coach that was Coughlin. It's Coughlin, and he has some great uh, opinions on what may have happened. Uh, Tom also owns a company called Blue Line Psychological Services, and he helps uh, members of the service, a member of the NYPD, NYPD who are dealing with depression and that type of thing, and he helps them out. What better person to help out a, form, a cop than a former cop? Anyway, I'd like to, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Tom Coughlin. Tom, Bill, welcome to the show. To be here. Thanks very much, Bill. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. You're also a professor, that, right, at Monroe College? I am. I am. Yeah, I've been with Monroe since 2010. Well, you're a veteran. You wear <laughs> you wear you wear many hats, right? You wear many hats. And I you do. Also, I keep you also you also work for uh, an organization called Papa, right? Isn't that correct? I do. I'm an affiliated clinician with the Papa program, which is a peer support program for members of the New York City Police Department, where they can reach out and get confidential mental health services. And I'm one of the clinicians uh, in their clinical referral network. You know, I love what Papa does, but that has to be the worst acronym ever invented, you know, because <laughs> you can never remember what it stands for. It's like police organization for peer Whatever, 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 right? I, I don't know exactly what it means. Luckily, Papa rolls off the tongue. So luckily, you it, don't It rolls off the to, tongue. Right? Oh, police organization <laughs> providing peer assistance. Wow. There you go. That's, that's, a, go. that's a mouthful, right? That's a mouthful. <laughs> so you uh, obviously know a lot since police suicide is a huge topic. You know a great deal about that. So let's apply this to this, would be, this suicide bomber, which is what he is. Anthony Warner. And could you uh, maybe give us a little um, of your knowledge in regards to this case and specifically this individual, Anthony Warner? Sure. I, I'd be happy to. And yeah, I've, I've done a lot of work uh, in, the t in the realm of police suicide, trying to understand the variables that contribute to police suicide specifically. 
and you know what we know about suicide is that suicide is multi-determined, right? There is no one variable that contributes to the decision to to take one's life. Um, I think when we look at this particular case, I think that we're seeing a mix of issues regarding suicide, as well as I think we could probably apply some of the psychology associated with lone wolf terrorism in a certain way. So if we kind of combine suicidology as well as a piece of lone wolf terrorism, some of the things that we know psychologically about lone wolf terrorists, I think apply as well. Um, you know, in, in suicide, because it is multi-determined, there's often this question about whether or not suicide is a product of mental illness. And this is an unsettled question. It's actually in, in the field of suicidology, it's actually a fairly controversial question because there are those who would suggest, for example, the CDC released a report back in it was 2018, I believe, uh, which suggested that less than half of all suicides is attributable to a mental illness. However, Tom, could I, just in, hmm? could I just interrupt you for one second? But wouldn't it be consistent with suicide that at the time you are going to take your own life, that you're in mental crisis right then? Yeah, I mean, and that is that is the question, right? So researchers into suicide like Thomas Joyner and others suggest that almost all suicides have uh, an undiagnosed mental illness or at least what we call subclinical manifestations of a mental illness. So aspect of mental illnesses that don't maybe reach a full diagnostic criteria for a mental illness, but certainly subclinical presentations. And so, yes, certainly when someone is in a moment of suicide, clearly there's mental distress. Um, although we also have to think about, as I mentioned, the type of suicides that we see in, in lone wolf terrorists who take their own lives, where perhaps that's not really mental distress, right? Perhaps that's ideologically driven. Right. And, and in this case, similar to the case of someone like a, a Ted Kaczynski, who obviously was not a suicide bomber per se, but we have to look at the ideology driving the person in the behavior and, and whether or not there was an ideology driving it. That's a, a picture of Anthony Warner that you see on the screen and applying, applying what you were just talking about, uh, he was a male white, 63 years old, right? Computer technician, obviously a smart, smart guy. He was a loner, a recluse. He wasn't married. Um, the, his neighbors who he had lived uh, next door to barely knew him. They knew him as Tony, but they just knew him on a saying hello basis, but really didn't know him at all. Um, he sent an email to his employer three weeks prior to this, telling them that he was retiring. So he's starting to lay the groundwork, uh, which I understand is someone who's really serious about suicide. That's, that's what they do, right? They lay the groundwork. Uh, even more, he um, started shedding his possessions. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. That's a huge thing, right? You want, want to touch upon that? It is. There are certain markers that we see for suicidality. Um, when people start tying up loose ends, 
when they start saying final goodbyes to loved ones, start giving away possessions. My understanding is that he had started giving away major possessions, that he had signed over the title of a vehicle that he had to somebody. He had been giving away sort of large possessions um, that he had to people. And, uh, and there's some thought that he had uh, recently been diagnosed with some kind of a significant illness um, and perhaps did not think he'd be living much longer, right? So um, I'm not certain that all of this is, is completely verified, but it would certainly make sense that for somebody who, um, somebody who didn't see themselves living much longer and was very strongly ideologically driven um, in a certain way, it sort of makes sense that if I'm going to suffer through a long illness and I'm ideologically driven and I want to make a statement in a way that will have an impact uh, on policies, um, that it seems in some mentally ill way, it seems a way to make a, a statement. Well, um, yes, he, he had given away, he signed over his, ho his home to mm -hmm. either an ex-girlfriend, and he did that uh, the day before Thanksgiving. And then we find out he had also signed over his, uh, the home he grew up in, which was in dispute with his mother uh, a month or two ago. So yeah, he's giving away. So you know, I mean, look, you don't come back after a, a suicide attempt and say, "Hey, can I have my stuff back? It didn't work." Right. You know, no, it's he's real serious. You know, he's real serious. And the other things about him, I mean, talk about being a loner and a recluse, but he's a smart guy. He's real smart. You know, and when us in law enforcement, what we're always looking for is the criminal history. Is that gonna explain? his uh his activity you know as the, as the, a great john jay professor says you know previous conduct is a good indicator of future conduct but he had one arrest when he was 21 years old i believe for selling marijuana so that doesn't that that was 42 years ago so that doesn't explain you know his conduct of of you know this crime that he did and committing suicide so we're still looking for answers relative to why he did this. Right. And, 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 and to complete that, to complete that idiom, um, the idea that past behavior predicts, predicts future behavior, it's typically that past behavior predicts future behavior within a similar context, right? Um, and so we would need to know the context in which prior criminal behavior occurred to really be able to predict future criminal behavior. Um, when, we, when we think about bombers, the, the typical bomber is, is, is a male, uh, sort of a middle-aged male, um, typically with some nationalistic tendencies, nationalistic beliefs, um, and often patriotic nationalistic beliefs, right? And so when we look at his choices of behaviors, the recording, for instance, the recording that warned people of the explosion. Right. Um, and certainly there's always the concern of secondary devices, et, et cetera. But it, it really speaks to his nationalistic, patriotic belief system in that it seems as though he did not want to see fatalities as a result of his bombings, right? that there was a sense of nationalism and or patriotism or some kind of a moral value set guiding him. So in some way he was trying to make some statement uh, in, re in regard to some issue, perhaps an ideological one, 
but he was also making a statement in regard to something about himself, that there was this patriotic sense, there was this piece of high moral values. We think back to, uh, to one of the more famous bomber cases. We think back to George Metesky uh, back in New York in the, uh, the 40s and the 50s. And George Metesky was the mad bomber. He had planted multiple bombs throughout New York City. Um, but he stopped during World War II. And he left a note saying that so long as the war is on, I'm not going to continue to cause chaos in the city. We have bigger things to worry about. Well, what so a nice, sort of what a nice guy. Way. What a patriotic yeah. guy. <laughs> and so, but we see sort of trappings of that here in yeah. this case. Well, Tom, right? what I wanted to say, people. if I could interrupt you for a second. What I wanted mm -hmm. to say was, yeah, it was it was admirable that he put this warning in there and the police mm -hmm. were able to evacuate the buildings, which resulted, I'm sure, saved dozens of lives. Mm -hmm. But yet I just showed the picture on the screen of the devastation yeah. that that bomb did. So with a bomb, you can't surgically say, oh, I'm going to I'm not going to kill anyone because that mm -hmm. I think eight people total were injured by that. So you can't say, I mean, yeah, he tried not to kill, but he still could have killed many, many people. Certainly. You know, certainly. So that the and the devastation that that bomb did, I believe 40 businesses were destroyed, you know. Yeah. And, and, and until we, we find some kind of a, a manifesto of the sort that we found with Ted Kaczynski, um, we didn't find it necessarily. He submitted his manifesto. Right. Um, but right. until we find some kind of a manifesto really explaining his motive, chances are we'll, we may never know what his motive is. But I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere there's a manifesto that will be discovered or perhaps an emailed to somebody or mailed somewhere, left it in some way to be discovered. Because I would think that with this much of a drive to make a statement, you want that statement to be heard, to be known. Right. You would so you I would think that, but let let's talk about the investigative end for it, because mm -hmm. uh, not all of our listeners know about how this uh, was put together. Mm -hmm. He is positively identified based on the fact that DNA at the scene, I maybe even on pieces of the RV, were mm -hmm. compared against DNA inside a car that he owns, off gloves and a hat. So he's positively identified. Law enforcement is satisfied that they have mm -hmm. the right guy. Um, you talk about, you know, once I saw, uh, before they even had him, once I saw that this vehicle was involved, I was like, you know, a lot of times it's so crazy that um, we'll call them perpetrators. They use their own vehicle to do something. And obviously he didn't intend to walk away from this. So sure enough, the VIN number comes back to Anthony Warner and then they unfold the whole situation uh, they find his house, they do a search warrant on his house. There's a lot of things that we probably are not privy to. His cell phone records, for example. And if all listeners don't know, your cell phone is voluminous piece of evidence in any kind of investigation, from the cell site information to your text messages, to the calls you've made, to the people you've called. It's a huge uh, piece of investigative uh, material. The other thing was, is the RV itself. Sure enough, they go on Google Earth. You know, I go on Google Earth. I look at my house. I like I don't own that car anymore because it's <laughs> it's so old. But yet it can be useful. Right. And as we know from doing investigations, there is video all over this world. Everywhere you look, there's video, whether it's cell phone cameras, 
to um, cameras on stores, uh, cameras on roads, red light cameras. There are cameras everywhere. So they could backtrack and look and see where was this RV? Check that against his cell phone records and see where he was driving. They're pretty satisfied now, but I, I don't see how you could definitively say that that he acted alone. I think it's a little too soon to say definitively he acted alone. Uh, but, you know, in our 24-hour news cycle, everyone wants instantaneous information. And I know from working uh, 16 years in the detective bureau that if you want accurate investigative information, it cannot come fast. Fast and accurate information, they do not live in the same home. Yeah, I, I, uh, I certainly, I, I would not be surprised if if he worked in concert with someone. However, in the same way, if we think about if we think about this bomber in the same way that we think about lone wolf terrorists and what makes them unique and so particularly dangerous, when um, lone wolf terror, we don't get chatter the way that we get chatter in in group terror, right? Because they work in isolation. Right. They work in isolated cells, so there's no chatter to be discovered. Uh, which allows them to go undetected and to remain under the radar. They tend to be loners, which he's been described as, right? They tend to, in many cases, be mentally ill, which is what makes them not a good fit for the terror group. And the groups often ostracize them from membership because they're unstable and they can't be controlled. Right. And so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised also if he acted completely alone um, from what I understand, he had a degree in mathematics and some science experience. And so uh, I imagine it doesn't take that much digging to learn how to build the kind of items, the kind of bombs that, that he built, um, and a tremendous amount of dedication and determination, uh, which seems that, that he very much might have had a well, real he's, he's a, skill. As you say, mathematics, he's a very smart guy. At one time in the 90s, he owned a burglar alarm, alarm company. And for our listeners also, you cannot get a license to own a burglar alarm company unless you basically have a clean record. And they probably forgave or his uh, marijuana sales conviction or whatever it was uh, disposed of. That was when he was 21 years old. So he had a clean enough record to get a license to own a burglar alarm company. And he also uh, was an engineer. He fixed computers. So he's a pretty damn smart guy right yes yes reminds me very much of the same kind of skill set that Kaczynski brought to the table um, with his MIT background uh, and his mathematical and his science background right um, so I, I would not at all be surprised if he operated in an isolated cell you know I wanted to uh, just bring up something and, and uh, another uh, technician or a, a person in the mental health business gave me the four key ingredients to suicide. And mm -hmm. number one was being in pain, physical or psychological. Mm -hmm. And number two was helpless to do anything. Number three was hopeless. You don't feel the condition will improve and mm -hmm. you're totally alone and isolated and possibly low self-esteem. It mm -hmm. seemed maybe you want to comment about those four things in regards sure. to Anthony Warner. Sure. Let's, let's, let's take the first piece. That, that idea of being in pain. Um, it's been my experience working with many clients who are actively suicidal 
um, that have an intent and have a plan and have a means of committing suicide um, and are actively considering doing it um, or have had a suicide attempt or a gesture in the past. Um, it's been my experience working clinically with suicidal people is that surprisingly enough, they actually don't want to die. Most suicidal people do not actually want to die. What they want is for the pain to stop. Right. They just want the pain that they're in to end. But they reach a point where they don't see another way because they've become hopeless. They no longer believe that tomorrow will ever be better than today. So today is awful. Today is horrific. And tomorrow will never, ever be better. It will only be worse. Right. When that is your reality, when you're in nothing but constant daily emotional or mental pain, and you have no belief that it will ever be better. Suicide is a fairly logical solution, right? I've um, been, you know, I, as my, in my role as a sergeant in homicide, I went to yeah. way more suicide scenes than, uh, you know, anyone would ever want to go to, you know? Mm. And it's just, it is so heartbreaking, you know, that yes. you think that if this person was able to talk to somebody or call somebody or, you know, if someone... Uh, reached out to them knowing that they were in pain. Maybe it could have saved their life. But then again, maybe they try it again at another time. And that's, and that's not uncommon that, that we see multiple attempts uh, in, in a person's life. Um, when we think about those, those, those other pieces of, of the suicidal mind, being a perceived burden, we know is also a large piece this idea that I'm a burden on others or I'm a burden on society and I no longer wanna be a burden. Um, so yes, hopelessness, helplessness, low self-esteem, a sense of being a perceived burden on other people and just being in pain and just wanting it to end. Um, and so it might make sense that, that he had discovered that he was gonna you know, suffer some terminal illness or, or something and, and didn't wanna waste away that way or didn't wanna die that way. And therefore, suicide with the ability to make a statement with his death in almost a martyrdom kind of way would make sense to him. Well, that's that's the baffling thing to everyone now. And everyone wants to know and is dying to know. And maybe we'll never know the motive. What was his motive? You know, and the fact that maybe the, the RV was parked in front of an AT&T facility, potentially could that be that he was trying to get back at them for some reason? that hasn't been uncovered yet. Uh, everyone's guess is as good as another. Maybe the only people that may have more information is the FBI and the ATF and the police that are part of this investigation. But we can just speculate or make educated guesses. But you know, as a detective, that that's how cases are solved. I used to say, one of my detectives, he was always hypothesizing and theorizing. And I used to say, Joe, Stop hypothesizing and theorizing and start typerizing your reports, you know. <laughs> so, but that is you know, how you solve cases by talking to each other. When, when, when you point out, when you bring up this idea of the AT&T store, right? Um, so very often, obviously, this is not going to be a serial bomber because he died in the first bombing. Um, but we have seen serial bombers in, in, in the past, right? Uh, the same way that we have serial offenders of many kinds, we also sometimes have serial bombers, right? Ted Kaczynski, right. George Metesky, right? These various people. Um, however, in serial offenses, what we know is that the first crime 
is the most important crime. For understanding motive, the first crime is the most important crime. And so here we have his first crime, right? His first bombing. Obviously, it will be his last bombing, right. but here we have his first bombing. And so this would be the most important one to really understand what he was trying to say, to understand what the message was. And so it may very well be linked to the AT&T store, right? There may be some statement being made. So for example, Kaczynski, Kaczynski bombed airlines and other places because as he said in his manifesto, his idea was not to overthrow government. His idea was to overthrow the technological and economic bases of government, right? When we look at Metesky's bombings, Metesky bombed throughout New York City for I think a period of, I think it was 14 years aside from the break that he took during World War II. And, and his crimes were left unsolved. And, and eventually it was the first bombing that held the clue that solved it. And that was that that first bombing was at a Con Edison site. And he had an individual beef to pick with Con Edison. And so his first bombing was the most important because it was done at a Con Edison site and it was directly linked to his motive. So I wouldn't be surprised if the AT&T store is significant in regard to this one being his big statement, making right. some statement against whatever it might be, 5G or AT&T or whatever it might be. But it would not surprise me at all if it was linked to the store. I think we all have a beef with Con Edison, but we don't... <laughs> We don't bomb. We don't set off a bomb in front of their store. You know, I don't like the uh, AT and T bill I get every month. You know, but uh, I take it on the chin. You know, there, there was one other thing that um, Gary Bisonia said to me, and he said twenty percent of people who are suicidal have made their mind up and don't want help, and they'll take you with them. So you, there, is, there is a subpopulation of, of people who are suicidal um, that are fully committed, right? Um, and that one way or another, if someone else gets dragged into it, well, and so be it, right? Um, and, and so I, I, I don't think that he wanted to take, in this particular case, I don't think he wanted to take other people with him. If he did, I think he could have very effectively taken many people with sure. him um, if he had driven into a, a, a high populated area in the middle of day on you know where, wherever it might be you know some, there's some kind of high populated area um, but I certainly think that he that he had that he had the means well to, I think to, that to that, that recording the recording started playing at 5 30 in the morning mm -hmm. so that the uh, Nashville police they had an hour uh, to uh, evacuate those buildings. I mean, they didn't know they had an hour. They put themselves in harm, harm's way, which police all over the country, they do that every day of the week. I mean, I always remember the picture from 9-11 where it showed civilians running away and it had police running in and it said, while others were running out, we ran in. And that's what police do all over the country. You know, it's not unique to New York City or to Nashville. They risk their lives for strangers all over the country. Yeah, heroic self-sacrificing behavior on a daily basis that often goes unrecognized um, and, and, and sometimes unfortunately unappreciated. Um, sort of on a tangent, I had the opportunity to watch the press conference yesterday, six officers from Nashville gave when they each came up to the mic uh, at individual times. And first of all, my hat's off and my absolute total admiration to those six officers and thank them for their service. I, and, I, and I hope, and, and, and I hope that someone in a decision-making position in Nashville is listening. I hope 
that they are being afforded the mental health resources that they undoubtedly need and will need going forward into the future to help them deal with the trauma of that event. Because the type of vicarious trauma attached to that event will show itself three to six months after the event, not in the immediate aftermath of the event. And I just really hope that they're being given the, the appropriate resources that they need to deal with it. You know, Tom, you're so right. And uh, as law enforcement officers, former law enforcement officers, we take that for granted. You know, I realized this whole show, I'm calling you Tom and not Dr. Cogman. I no, should've... please, Tom. Okay, no, no, you know, no. I was, uh, <laughs> I, you should, you worked hard to get that degree and you deserve the respect that, that the, the title gives you. But yeah, that's uh, right. I'll, you I'll know, stick with Tom. <laughs> but we're both we're both former law enforcement, so I guess we you know we uh, we feel comfortable using each other's uh, first names without uh, the title. But you're right; those cops deserve to be praised. You know, maybe they deserve to be bumped up into a detail, uh, you know, for doing great work. And you're so right. I mean, you know, after doing 27 years, and I talk to cops that have retired, I think we all have a touch of PTSD, all of us, you know, because we've seen heinous things. We've seen horrendous stuff, you know, uh, bodies blowing up the brains of a 15 year old in the sidewalk, you know, uh, 14 year old girls raped by their uncle, you know, horrendous yeah. things that people that work a nine to five job at a bank, they, they never see things like that. And hopefully they never will, but we carry those things with us for the rest of our lives. Yeah, the, the, the amount of vicarious trauma, um, secondary trauma, if, if, if you will, but the amount of vicarious trauma, trauma experienced by living it through someone else's experience, right? Or a trauma that didn't directly happen to you, but that you bore witness to. The amount of professional traumatic exposure, vicarious trauma that we experience in law enforcement, and not only law enforcement, certainly the fire service, I'll bus chops on, 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 on <laughs> we don't mention service. we don't mention all, firemen on the show <laughs> all, all day and all night I'll, I'll certainly bust their chops but but you know, listen the vicarious trauma the professional traumatic exposure that we see in police work and in fire service in, in emt work and and even frankly in in, in dispatching work um it, there's a tremendous amount of vicarious trauma that, that comes along with it and i think sometimes there is this uh, push to to sort of suppress it Right, or to just sort of say, I'm strong enough to deal with this. I don't need any help. Um, but it's just not so. We, we we carry the burden of years and years of vicarious trauma. Um, and as I said, I, I just hope that that those officers are being afforded the resources that they need to deal with it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Tom, I don't want to keep you here because I know you're a busy guy. He's got he's got patients waiting online outside. That's how busy this guy is. You know, and I, I do just have an like eight o'clock. <laughs> I just like to say that's. It's Dr. Thomas Coglin. He's a clinical psychologist, retired NYPD detective, and he's the owner of Blue Line Psychological Services. And he helps uh, not just members of the service, not just police, but that's been his specialty. And I thought it would be fascinating tonight to get the opinion of a psychologist in regards to maybe the personality of uh, Anthony Warner. And not that we're going to come up with his motive. Uh, we're not on the scene investigators. And the investigators that are on the scene certainly have a hell of a lot more information uh, than we have. And at this point, I'd, I'd like to thank our Patreon members. We're at www.patreon.com slash police off the cuff. And this is another show we do on police off the cuff, which is called Real Crime Stories. I'm sorry I couldn't address all the people that were on live chat 
It's like I'm my engine, my own engineer. I'm talent and I'm trying to talk to Tom at the same time. But I thought this was a fascinating show. And Tom, I just would like to invite you back for the future in the future if you'd like to come back. I would love I, to. There is so to. many things that we could use the expertise uh, of a psychologist on. And uh, you're great. And uh, you're also a retired detective. And the great thing about it is that after the 30 minutes, I'm not getting a bill. So <laughs> I know, I know you I might, I might, I might, might send me some, one. <laughs> well, I, I might scratch up some diagnostic impressions. Oh, okay. Send them so, along. Maybe. <laughs> so just this Dr. Tom Coughlin, retired member of the service. I'm Bill Cannon from real crime stories. We're going to sign off now. Thank you so much for listening, Tom. Thanks again. Thank you, Bill.